0: Hey, doing these every day these days, doing them every day, kind of like a daily radio show. I mean, my approach to podcasting is the same thing as radio, really. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people are very busy or they're very professional about it, where they release one a week, they have a schedule, and that's just no way, no way are we going to schedule these out. Maybe at some point I will have to. But the idea of having it come out a certain day of the week, I like it to be a surprise. Kind of like getting a phone call from somebody. There's something nice, even if you're not prepared for it. Like your friend calls you and that sets up, you're going to call them back sooner rather than later. Hopefully these episodes, when they pop up, when you notice them, and if you actually like the show and or want to listen to the show, hopefully it's like a friend giving you a surprise phone call, which is the best. As nice as it is to schedule out a call, I mean, that's nice, too. We all have busy lives, or we like to believe that, or we have to be mentally prepared. You know, it's it's also nice when it's a surprise. And this show's just nonstop. This show is that friend who just calls you repeatedly until you pick up. This show's that friend. Um, but this episode going to be a bit of a free-for-all. And I know all these shows, every night school is some form of free-for-all, but when I say it's a free-for-all, that means it's extra free. There's an extra amount of freedom. We've taken our belt, and we've loosened it up a little bit. You know, your belt's a little bit looser when I say it's a free-for-all. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about synesthesia, And if you're not familiar with that, you should be. It's a commonly known psychological phenomenon. And it's interesting, and and it's one where people will associate colors with—just look it up if you're not familiar— but people will basically see things that aren't related. They'll see a correlation between things that aren't related, but not just that. It's not just that they make analogies between things— but they will actually see colors that correspond to numbers. There's an association there, and from what I've heard, there's even sort of a visual aspect of it. And I have a weird form of synesthesia where I can see a correlation between things, and it's very obvious to me, but I've never heard it discussed before. And I think a good example would be when I think of Burger King, and I was always a Burger King guy. You know, if I had the choice growing up between Burger King and McDonald's, it was always Burger King. But I knew people who thought less of me for that. I knew McDonald's people who thought less of me. And for whatever reason, you know, everywhere there's a Burger King, there's a McDonald's across the street. They have a kind of a, a permanent relationship together. Uh, they're they're in a relationship. Burger King and McDonald's are different, but they're in a relationship where they're always near each other. They're al- they're always across the street, and that makes sense. If you look up uh, you know marketing strategy, they recommend that sort of thing because somebody's already going to be in the area wanting fast food or wanting a hamburger, a fast food hamburger. So you set up your rival store nearby, because then they think, oh, I'm already here for a hamburger, but they see Burger King. They were heading to McDonald's, but they see a Burger King, and they think, oh, I'll go to Burger King instead. So it makes sense from a, a marketing point of view, whereas if you put the Burger King on the other side of town you know, and someone heads to McDonald's, they're never going to think, oh, you know what, I'm going to go to Burger King instead, I'm sick of McDonald's, or, oh, I actually like Burger King better, and I didn't realize it was so close, you know, there's a reason to do that, and that's something I need to consider more, I mean, I don't really market myself in any respect, but that's something to consider, is that sometimes proximity is actually valuable, being in close proximity to a rival, for that matter, I mean, I think a a good, they're playing the same game. It just comes back to that. I always make that comparison of, you know, a football team where it's like, you know, if you're a football team, you're not going to go to the other stadium over here. You're going to, you're going to go to the stadium where the audience is and where there's already a team because you want to play the game. But that has nothing to do with synesthesia. Uh, You know, as part of this free for all, we're just going all over the place. But synesthesia. So I'm more of a Burger King guy. And for me, like, there's this, When I think of Burger King, I think of Pepsi. And when I think of McDonald's, I think of Coca-Cola. And it's not because, I don't know if there's a deal with those. I don't know if Burger King only sells Pepsi. I don't know if McDonald's only sells Coca-Cola. I think most of those places sell both. I think most places sell both. Maybe, I don't know. I don't actually know. It's been a while since I saw a fast food fountain. It's been a while since I went into a fast food restaurant to do anything but use the restroom, but for me, like, Burger King is the same, it's in the same place in, I guess, American culture as Pepsi is, and for that matter, Ford Truck. So Burger King is to Pepsi as McDonald's is to Coca-Cola, and Burger King and Pepsi are to Ford Truck's as McDonald's and Coca-Cola are to Chevrolet. I feel like those things align. And those are all rivals. Those are all rival companies who offer similar products. But to me, there's some weird correlation, and I almost have this synesthesia where Burger King has... And I'm having trouble saying the word burger. I've never struggled to say that word, but for whatever reason, I'm feeling very self-conscious or something, or there's just some sort of... uh, There's a barrier there's the burger barrier. My pronunciation is just, I'm not able to enunciate it like I would want to. Um, thank God I'm not ordering a burger. They might not know what I'm saying. But, you know, there's a weird correlation there. And it's to me, it's a form of synesthesia, where to me, Burger King is like Pepsi and Ford trucks, whereas McDonald's is like Coca-Cola and Chevrolet. I don't know why, but to me, those things, they, they occupy the same space. And to me, it's sort of a a synesthetic uh, effect. I can say synesthetic. I can't say the word burger. But it happens to me with other things, too. You know, and, and there is sort of a color effect that happens sometimes where I don't see colors. It's not like I'm seeing colors in my vision, but I have a color association. You know, like I study the mafia a lot and... Each of the five New York crime families, I associate them with a certain color, and these aren't gangs, they don't have bandanas, they don't actually wear colors, but in my mind when I, when, I say, when I hear like Genovese family, I see the color purple, but when I hear Gambino family, I see the color blue, or I associate them with the color blue. It's just a weird thing that happens. Um, but uh, yeah, it's sort of like uh, Rain Man Syndrome. And I don't know what that's called properly. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't have a proper name. As far as I'm concerned, that's the proper diagnosis, or that's the only way to put it, Rain Man Syndrome. And I saw a documentary about that, and it, it had the guy, I think his name's Kim Peeks, and he was the guy who Rain Man was loosely based around. I don't know how loosely, but it was based around his... He was the archetype, because for whatever reason, that guy's a big deal. He can remember everything. He, has, he just has an incredible memory, and he can calculate numbers. You know, if you've seen the movie Rain Man, you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen the, the movie Rain Man, you know all about Rain Man Syndrome. And, uh, but there was a younger guy in it, a younger guy, and as part of Rain Man Syndrome, people who have this, they, they experience a lot of synesthesia. And it's one of the reasons why somehow they're able to process things. And the younger guy, for example, when he sees large or tall objects, he associates them with the number nine, whereas smaller objects are one, and there's a whole range in between. And when he's around a lot of nines, he feels very humbled and intimidated. And he's from, I think he was from uh, the English countryside. And he's another one of the good ones. I liked him. Because he was much more functional than... Kim Peaks, the rain, the guy Rain Man was based on. This younger version, this younger Rain Man, he was a lot more social. You know, he still had some limitations, and it's, it's not like I don't like Kim Peaks because he's not as socially functional, but just this younger guy was able to explain himself a lot better. And he... They took him to a city and he hadn't been to very many cities and when he went in when they were driving in and he could see the skyline he kind of shrank and he was saying how he, he was feeling uneasy because he said, you know, all those buildings a lot of nines there there's a lot of nines over there and I think trees too but you know, he might like trees. Trees might be the good nines whereas buildings are the bad nines. And I'm going to start saying that and not give anybody any context. I'm going to say to friends, if, if you want to go for a hike in the woods or a walk in the woods, I'm going to say, let's go see some good nines. You want to go see some good nines? Let's get out of the bad nines. And, you know, not to get too current eventy, current eventy, uh, but not to get too into that. But, you know, I think this is a great example where a lot of people are having some uh, harsh realizations about city life, not just the rate at which disease can spread in cities, in large cities, but also what happens when you're quarantined in a city. So, you know, bad nines. I think a lot of people who have never had that form of Rain Man synesthesia are seeing a lot of bad nines right now, and they want to get out. They want to go toward the good nines. But anyway, that's an example of the synesthesia, where he sees numbers. And I don't know if he actually sees the number itself, or if it's just an association. Maybe it's like me and Burger King and Pepsi and Ford Truck versus McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Chevrolet. Maybe it's like that, where it's not even something I actually see. It's more of just a sense. There's some sort of... I don't know, there's just some sort of... They're on the same team. I don't know what it is. Um, But, uh, you know, it's funny, too, about Rain Man Syndrome. And I don't know what it's called, but like I said, you should just call it Rain Man Syndrome. Because if you're talking to somebody and you, you use the proper name for whatever that is, they're not going to know what you're talking about. But if you say, like Rain Man, they're going to know right away. Even if they haven't even seen Rain Man, they've probably heard the story of the toothpicks, where he like, looks at the ground, a bunch of toothpicks spill on the ground, and he looks down, and he can count them just by looking at their all of them at once. He can count them within seconds. And I was talking about this recently, actually, and as, as long-time listeners know, I'm pea-shy. I'm a pee-shy guy. I'm a pee-shy guy. I'm a pee-shy guy, and I I ain't ashamed. I ain't ashamed because I ain't an animal. I don't like to pee next to people, and it turns out actually animals shouldn't get dragged into this because animals don't like to pee next to each other neither. Dogs like to mark their spot. They don't like to pee around other pee, and if they do, they like, you know, whatever. Um... But, uh, you know, it's kind of like with pea shyness. I I was saying recently, and it, it was a joke, but at the same time it's true, where you don't want to get academic or scientific or all medical about pea shyness. I'm sure it has a name. I think it's it's like, I don't even want to acknowledge it. I've heard it before, and I could make some guesses as to what it is. But uh, it's kind of like Rain Man Syndrome, where you just call it pea shyness, and you own it. You own the word pee shyness, and you say, and not piss shyness, because I don't like saying pee. Pee is very, like, little kids, it's women and children, and nothing against women and children, I love them both, but it's okay to say pee if you're a woman or child, but when you're a man, like, hanging out with your friends, and you say, gotta go pee, come on, you know, don't do that, you know, don't do that to your friends, it's not even about you, you piss. You piss. But with pee shyness, I guess pee shyness is so inherently, it shouldn't be embarrassing, and I want to normalize pee shyness. I want to give exposure. That's why I talk openly about it with confidence, uh, even though I don't, I don't have the confidence to pee in a packed public restroom you know, in front of a urinal trough in a stadium where like the side of your jeans are touching the side of another guy's jeans as you have to like squeeze in like a, a disgusting animal, but... Uh, you know, I want to normalize it with some confidence. Even though I don't have the confidence to pee in front of other people, I want to talk about that with confidence. That's my way around the issue. But if you want to give it a proper diagnosis, go ahead. If you're a doctor, if you're a doctor and you want to call it, you know, you're in, uh, I don't know, whatever it is. Whatever it is, but it's sort of like that with Rainman syndrome. Or just call it pea shyness. Just call it Rainman syndrome. You don't got to be a doctor about it. You don't got to be a doctor. But uh, synesthesia. It's not always colors. It's not always numbers. Sometimes it's just seeing the commonality between certain companies or products. And if you're listening to this and you and it makes sense. I would love to get some feedback. I don't even know the best way. I've given out my personal phone number on here years ago or a year ago. I don't even remember when it was. Nobody called me. Nobody, no listener called me who, who wasn't already a friend. Uh, so, I don't know. Find a way to, I'm not, I'm not too hard to get a hold of. If you know what I'm talking about with this sort of product synesthesia, get a hold of me. You know, we can, talk this, we can talk this out. Let me know what other things that you associate with other things that aren't directly related, but you feel there's some sort of correlation, because that's fascinating to me. Um, but, uh, you know, another thought I was thinking earlier, I was thinking about the, the whole debate about sexualization in media, in entertainment commercials you know that's a I've been hearing that my whole life it's not a new argument the sexualization of women for one using sex to market to people and of course men they people show attractive men on products you know I'm not trying to get all like well they sexualize men too I'm not trying to get that way about it because uh, I don't care one way or another sexualize anybody I mean I'm personally averse to over sexualization. But I'm not going to split hairs over who is sexualized or why. I mean, I'd rather have none of it. But it's also not that's not the hill that I'm going to die on. To use a phrase that everybody uses, I'm going to uh, the hill that I'm going to die on is the phrase that's the hill I'm going to die on. That's important to me. <laughs> the hill that I'm going to die on is the hill you know that I'm going to die on. Uh, but. Yeah, there is that idea with a big debate, I don't know if I've heard it as much anymore, but there's this idea too where like, oh, certain types of women are sexualized. And I especially understand the sexualization of young girls, and I am opposed to that. But the the argument I heard, and I I try not to pretend, because we have this tendency to hear somebody say something or a certain type of person express an opinion, and then if we catch somebody similar in a contradiction, we act like it was the same person. Like if someone we know who's a a Democrat says something and then another Democrat or another group of Democrats says something that contradicts that, there's this tendency to say, oh, well, you were saying this and now you're saying that, you hypocrite. And it's like it might not have been the same exact person. But there is a lot of hypocrisy and there is a lot of contradiction. And one example of that with this sexualization in media is the argument I heard for a long time was... You know, we need less, women need to be less sexualized in advertising, in entertainment. And then now we have this whole, and I feel like it is the same group of people, the same groups, the same type of person who now is like, no, sexualizing women is okay, but they have to be overweight and not traditionally beautiful. And then I asked like, oh, so you didn't have a problem with women being sexualized. You had a problem with the type of woman who was being sexualized. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that it's all the same exact person who is saying both of these things, but it, it does seem to be coming from the same interest group. And that's the interesting thing about people propping up overweight people, and, and I'm not opposed to that. And, in fact, like, I'm not into, like, heavy women, but I, I like a good balance, you know, I've never been into skinny women, I've never been into the stereotypical model body type. You know, I don't like a skeletal frame on anybody, you know, like even just as in terms of what I think is cool, you know, even in terms of just what I think is, you know, like the sort of, you know, men that I would be like, oh, that guy looks cool. I want to be more like that person. I would never gravitate toward, you know, a skinny, oh, I want to be skinny, You know, that's not that's not like my idea of cool. Not that skinny people aren't cool, but it's like that's not. So this doesn't come from a place of the skinnier the better, the skinnier that you are, the cooler you are. Doesn't come from that place for me at all, and especially for women, it doesn't. I don't find skinny women very sexually attractive. I never have, but I also don't find you know significantly overweight women attractive either. But I don't mind you know a, a. a thick woman is, is great, it's perfect for me, actually, but there's a difference, you have to have a, a womanly shape, a womanly shape, either way, I think that's what it comes down to, is, you know, there, there's a range as far as my interest, and I feel stupid right now, like, this is what I'm attracted to, you know, I feel really stupid, I'm so stupid, but, uh, you know, I feel silly talking about it, but I'm just saying, like, I'm just giving a disclaimer, I have to catch myself, you know, that's my big thing. I have to catch myself giving disclaimers. So it's not like I'm, I'm not saying you have to be a certain type of person or anything like that. Um, So it's like the idea of, like, sexual advertising with a really skinny woman, that's not even attractive to me. But neither is putting a very large woman on an advertisement or, you know, having her dress sexy. And, you know, that's been a big thing in recent years. But the contradiction, the hypocrisy of it is just that I thought that... I thought that certain interest groups were against just over sexualization period. But it seems like it's it's shifted to no, we want to oversexualize large women now, or women who aren't traditionally attractive. And a lot of that comes from this conspiracy theory. You know, we tend to associate conspiracy theories with the right wing, and for good reason, because the brand of conspiracy theory, the industry of conspiracy theory, does tend to be right-leaning, at least at this point. But, you know, the left has plenty of conspiracy theories of its own, and one of them is that this idea that everything was just totally planned out, that this patriarchal... This heavy-handed patriarchal, you know, um, system forced everybody to see things a certain way for what reason, I don't know. They put certain types of people on a pedestal. Certain women were more attractive. And it's like, don't you think some of that comes from a natural place? Don't you think some of that comes from a natural impulse? You know, our natural impulses get very distorted and complicated and confused by society, because society is overcomplicated and confusing. But it comes from somewhere. And it's a chicken and the egg argument where people have this idea that society somehow existed before the people. And it's like, no, the people created the society. So the things that a larger group of people within society find attractive is what people naturally found attractive, and it did get somewhat institutionalized. You know, it's not that we aren't... uh, It's not that there isn't an agenda of some kind, but the idea that it all started in some dark room under a bare light bulb where all the men were meeting, and they decided, you know what? we got to make sure that advertising... The woman's got to have a, a zero waist, blonde hair, pouty lips, hourglass figure. You know, it's it's like the idea that this all started in a smoky room is absurd. You know, it's a little of both. Like everything, everything has a balance like that. Um, so it's like it, the left tends to have this idea though that there was that everything that has become institutionalized within our society was originally some kind of conspiracy when so many of these things did come from natural impulses and it's not that they didn't get reinforced and in some cases to an unhealthy degree it's not that that didn't happen but when you're trying to get the to the root of it you can't see it as a a, just a a backroom conspiracy you know you can't see it that way if you want to if you want to be taken seriously Because I think there is a conversation to be had about these things. And I'm very open-minded to it. But there's also hypocrisy to it and contradiction. And I'll get into that in a second, because as anybody who listens to this show well knows, I love hypocrisy and contradiction. I'm a hypocrite. I say things that are contradictory. And I guess I'll just say it now since I'm going into it. But the difference for me is... Contradiction matters if you're asking for something or trying to change something outside of yourself. That's when hypocrisy and contradiction matters. If you're just trying to figure out your own shit, if you're just trying to sort out your own place in the world, I think some degree of contradiction is healthy and necessary and can actually make you a much more whole person because you realize these things might not be as contradictory as I think they are. It's why Zen koans are filled with contradiction. And you're supposed to meditate on a Zen koan because you're basically trying to do the math to this equation that has no answer, and the answer is both everything and nothing. And you accept them both, because those two things are the ultimate contradiction. How can something be everything and nothing at the same time? So a lot of Zen koans, and even though some of them are kind of annoying, like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Um, you know, even though some of them are kind of cliché like that, there's still a lot of them, um, that even within the clichés, you know, if you, if you really meditate on it and you really get to the right place in your brain, you'll understand, oh, these things aren't contradictory after all. These things can coexist. These, there is a, a, a strange harmony that comes through contradiction, but that's something that's part of your own personal process, and where I think contradiction and hypocrisy become an issue are when you put it on a platform and you try to say, you need to do this, and then you turn around and say, you need to do that. And that's why politicians get called flip-floppers, because these are people who, by their very nature, are trying to change society, change the world change people's lives. And I think that's why people are sensitive to hypocrisy in politicians, because these are people who are not only asking for something, which they are doing, and you have to remember that. Politicians are begging. Think about that. Politicians are begging for you to like them. Do you like people who beg you to like them? I usually don't. I feel bad for them. I don't hate them for it. I don't hate people for being desperate, but a politician is by by its by a politician's very nature, he or she is desperate, and we know how desperate uh, desperation is so attractive, you know. Um, so it's not just that poli- politicians are asking for something, and they want to change something, and that's why I think we're so sensitive to contradiction in those people because it's not that we see the it's it's not like finding out your Because when you find out somebody, you know, has some sort of contradiction within them, that doesn't affect you at all. And if you want to judge them for that, that's you. That's your problem. And you're probably being a hypocrite in some way by judging them. So when it's an internal process, and that's, you know, that's where Zen comes in, where Zen is very much about internal contradiction and the contradiction of, of your life, your being, and being as a whole and you're not trying to do anything to anybody else or for anybody else and you're not asking for anybody you're not desperate you know so contradiction matters if you're asking for something and that's why that's why i'm pointing out this contradiction with sexualization because this comes from people who are asking for change or asking for things to be a certain way and I do feel like it's, if not the same person, it's a similar person. And in fact, I know people. You know, I, I, can get actually, I could get very specific and name names if I wanted, thinking about people I know who have expressed, you know, misgivings about the over-sexualization of women in our culture, who also have hopped on this train of promoting large women in bikinis, on magazine covers, and and if they want to do that, be my guest, but there is a contradiction there, and that should be acknowledged, and I don't judge them for it, but it's just something I'm aware of, and it makes me ask, do you even know what you want? Do you, is this, or is this just all about making you feel better? And that's okay if that's your goal, you know, if your goal in life is just to make yourself feel better, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm fine with that, but, you know, there is some dissonance there. There is some dissonance to that. And, you know, I I think I need to keep myself in check a little bit because I do think I have a tendency to, as much as I'm, you know, opposed to the whole body shaming um, movement and stuff like that, you know, I still feel I have fat credibility because I was fat for 20 years. And, And depending on how much I was drinking and how many gummy bears I was eating in my 20s, I would bloat up. And being that bloat, bloatation, you heard of flotation, well there's bloatation too, and you know, I was, you know, because some, there are fat people who are attractive, you know, and you know, I was talking about my taste in women, which I, it's kind of silly, I feel stupid going into it, but it's like, there are women who would be considered overweight, who I'm very attracted to, but they're not bloated. You know, someone who gradually gets fat, their skin looks better, they... They just look a little better. It fits them. But when you're bloated, people can recognize it right away. And I say that as somebody who's been very bloated throughout my life. I mean, I was bloated a week ago. I've been really my diet's been a lot better. My exercise has been a lot better in the last couple of weeks. But there was a period, I mean, I found in at the end of April, you know i I haven't felt well. I, I was sick in March, and I've had some ongoing issues since then. And I stupidly, when I was still feeling shitty physically from whatever I had, I don't know if it was coronavirus. I, I've had ongoing breathing issues ever since then. And I actually, I mean, I guess I should just go into it. Where I, I had a COVID test, the drive-through COVID test at the end of April, and I drove through, and they they stuck the the thing down the back of my nose, and it tingled. But I've had much worse things in my nose than that. Had much worse things in my nose than a COVID test. You know. It, in my life, uh, like uh, I don't know what have I had in my nose? I stuck a stick in my nose once. I, I found a, a twig. Uh, I, I I thought I was a, a vampire, so I, I tried to. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I stuck a stake in my nose. I stuck a wooden stake in my nose once. No. But I, I had the COVID test, came back negative, you know, but I have had some ongoing breathing issues and things. And, of course, people think it's psychosomatic. You know, your mom died. So you're having psychosomatic breathing issues. But I don't feel... I'm not panicky. I'm not anxious. I don't know. Who knows what it is? Maybe I had it, maybe I didn't. It feels dramatic to even talk about it one way or another. But uh, what was I talking about? Uh, you know, with... um current events. Obviously, we're just talking about current events here. Oh, well, I feel like I have... Oh, well, just talking about being bloated, that was it, going back to the bloatation topic. And, you know, I I was going through stuff, and I'm living in my mom's house, you know, and you know, she made a lot of. She would give people a lot of treats as part of her job as a real estate agent, and just as a as a person, person to person, she would give people a lot of treats. She would bake them cookies. She would give people little bags of Seahawks M Ms, little M Ms that have the Seahawks logo on them. And uh, I was just really craving. This was right after my COVID test came back negative, and I was just, you know, maybe maybe I did have something going on mentally as well. And I found like these two giant bags of m&ms and i'm talking like not just like the big bags that you would get at 7-eleven but i'm talking like m&ms that you're planning on opening up and putting into smaller bags that you're planning on slowly distributing to people i think there was probably a pound in each of these bags and i ate them over three days and that's not it there was also a giant like one pound bag of jelly beans i ate all three of these in the span of three nights And then I fasted, like, all through the next day, So each time, and then I repeated it until they were all gone. But I kind of have that feast or famine approach when I do get on a bad dietary kick, where I'm just like, I'm going to indulge in as much as I can. It's kind of like the cheat meal idea. I don't have cheat meals, but it's sort of the same philosophy, where I'm like, you know what, rather than, like, eat a handful of M&Ms over the span of a month... I'm going to eat two pounds of M&Ms and a pound of jelly beans in three days, and I surprisingly didn't feel that shitty. I felt shitty, but I didn't feel as shitty as I deserved to. But I was bloated, even though I fasted for like 20 hours each time. I still felt just completely bloated, and so I have a lot of experience with bloating, and back when I drank, it it was nothing to me to go out, drink all night, come home after the bar closed, put a frozen pizza in the oven, eat a whole frozen pizza and a big bag of gummy worms and go to bed, and you can imagine the the bloating that comes from that. So, like, I, but I have this fat credibility where I was, like, I was legitimately consistently fat when i was uh first 20 years of my life pretty much and because of that i feel like i have fat credibility where i feel like i can talk about fatness without it being cruel because i still feel like there's a part of my brain that's still fat and not body dysmorphia where i look in the mirror and think i'm fat it's not that it's not it doesn't it's not like an insecurity of thinking i'm still fat but it's like there's a part of me that like I have whatever the mental side of being fat is, and there is a mental side of being fat. Whatever the psychological side of it is, I still have that component in my brain. And because of that, I sometimes have to catch myself of, like, where I'll talk, not not in a cruel way. Like, I won't look at a fat person and be like, oh, you're fat. That's disgusting. I have no animosity towards someone who's overweight. Uh, you know, I, I really don't. But I talk sometimes openly about fatness. And I, and I have to remember that, oh, anybody who's met me within the last 14 years, even if they knew me on a day where I was really bloated, even if they knew me on a day where it had been like a week of frozen pizza and gummy bears, they still wouldn't necessarily think of me at my level of fatness that I had the first 20, 21 years of my life. So, uh, you know, I have to remember, oh, this person, and, and when I've told people that too, when I've told people, oh, I was pretty fat growing up. Uh, You know, I was athletic, I played football, you know, I didn't feel limited by my fatness, but I was legitimately fat. But if you didn't know me then, you wouldn't really know, and you might think that I was like Jennifer Aniston when she says, oh, I was so ugly and disliked in high school, and then you see her yearbook, and she was a cheerleader who dated, like, the the football captain. And I always use Jennifer Aniston as the example of that, and I don't know, I I think that's, I don't know if that's her, but you'll see that with female celebrities, in particular, well, they'll say that they were ugly or not popular, and then you'll find out they were voted prom queen. But that shows you that maybe mentally they always felt that way. Maybe mentally that it was never enough. Maybe their endless pursuit of jewels never satisfied them. And they felt that way, which probably influenced their desire to be really famous and have everybody watch them on a screen. You know, Maybe that all fed into that. Uh, but I think when I say that, people have a tendency to think like, oh, you know, you're just saying that. You probably were like a little bit heavier than you are now. And it's like, no, I was legitimately fat. Uh, you could have rolled me down a, a bowling lane. No, not quite. But, uh, you know, so, it's, so there's that. So I have, to, I have to keep that in mind that not everybody knew me when I was legitimately fat. But I still feel like I have fat credibility. You know, I still feel like I have that. Uh, But I just have to be careful how openly I talk about these things. And fortunately, I have a podcast where I I can just ramble on, not just about fatness, but about this, about my fat credibility, something I'm very proud of. I have that merit badge. That's how it feels. I feel like I have that merit badge. I might not be starting a fire without matches. I might not be rubbing two sticks together to start a fire right now as you're hanging hanging out with me, but I have the merit badge that says I did it. That's how I feel about being fat. Like, I might not be fat right now, but I have the merit badge that says, you know, I weighed 250 pounds or something probably at my fattest, you know, and I'm like 5'10". I don't know what I weighed. I, I think I weighed 240. Who knows? I don't even know, but maybe not that much. I don't know. I don't and let's talk let's talk about that for a second since this is a free for all you know just getting into the idea of like dieting and fitness and I don't I don't think you should think about your diet as a diet first of all I don't even like that word you know you know what's healthy to eat and what's not if you don't know what's healthy to eat and like let's throw out all the fad diets all this and that if you don't know it, it's it's one thing to not know exactly how to eat healthy but if you don't even know how to like google that and, and look at, like, what a healthy diet is, like, if you don't feel like you have access to that knowledge in 2020, like, I don't know what to say. Because a healthy diet is pretty obvious at this point. Everybody has their own issues. Everybody's body processes things differently. You don't have to hop on this diet or that diet. But I think we all have a pretty good sensibility when it comes to what's healthy in 2020. And maybe time will change that. Maybe in 20 years, we will feel differently. Broccoli is the real killer. I mean, I've even heard people say that. I've heard there's people who are on like the all meat diet who say that vegetables are they inflame your body or something. And I'm just like, really? You know, do you believe that? Um, But you know, for me, it's like I don't, I never weigh myself. The only time that I ever get weighed is when I'm at the doctor. And that included when I was fat and that includes me now. You know, I don't I don't like that system. If you want to get in shape, don't do it by weighing yourself. Don't measure it. If that helps you, I can't take that away from you. Like with anything. if If something is working for you, I can't take that away from you because you know if it's working. But if you have some shred of doubt, well, look into why you have that doubt. But for me personally, I would never recommend that somebody... Weigh themselves and try to lose weight or get in shape that way. Just do the things that you know get people in shape. Moving around, running, walking, cardio, lifting weights, being active, eating right, not overeating. It's really actually very simple if you don't have some kind of underlying health issue. And uh, so I don't believe in the, the weighing yourself thing, though. I think that you it's kind of like a ball and chain. And it's the same thing with pants sizes, clothing sizes. Just wear what you're gonna wear. And you'll know if your belt is getting tighter. You know, you'll know if you're outgrowing your pants or or you know, losing too much weight and your pants are falling off. You'll know. But don't get into this measurement system. I you know, and I know a ton of fitness experts, you know, people who are professionals. You know, they'll tell you otherwise, I'm sure, but I'm just saying what works for me. I'm preaching what I need here, and I think if you ever want to get in shape, whether it's losing weight or gaining weight, I don't think you should get into this world where you check your weight meticulously and worry about gaining a pound or losing a pound. There's something, you know, masochistic about that, in my opinion, and I don't think that should be the goal. You know, I don't think that should be the goal either. I mean, the goal is to feel better. The goal is to do the thing. Enjoy the work for the work's sake. And if you enjoy the benefit of that work, that's another thing. But I just don't like this system of weighing yourself. And it, it applied back when I was fat, and it applies to me now. When I'm just still mentally fat. I don't know. But, that, yeah, the sexualization, I don't think I have too much more to say on that. Yeah. Um, It just seems to, there seems to be, it's hypocrisy with an agenda. That's all it is. That's why I think I have a problem with this, like, oh, we don't want to sexualize women, but now we want to sexualize overweight women, because that's the statement we want to make. That's the statement we want to make. I I just, like, I sort of have an issue with that, and it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's something I'm aware of. And I see it with violence, too, because there's that idea of, like, oh, you know, Men depicted with guns and, you know, that warrior archetype. There's been a lot of opposition to that over the years. Where, like, oh, there's too much violence depicted in the media. And it's generally masculine because men are the more violent, uh, you know, the, the, the violent half. This is my other half. He's the violent half. That's what we should say. Not, not necessarily implying that a specific man is violent. But uh, just saying, you know, this is the one who, if you you ever see a cop car outside of this house, he's probably going to be the one being arrested in this relationship. Not that women don't hit men, not that women don't commit crimes, not that women don't kill people, but let's look at the facts. And that's that if a cop car pulls up to our house, they're probably looking for the dude. But people have a problem with men being depicted as as violent, you know. Um not not necessarily men being depicted as violent, but just the depiction of violence and this sort of pro violence that we associate with masculinity. But then you see where video games start coming out, it's like, oh, look at these video games where it's always a guy shooting people, these comic books, these movies, it's always a guy shooting people or killing people. And then you but then like in response to that, you end up with like, let's give the women the guns, because what we want is female representation. We want women killing people. We want women with guns. And it's like, well, are you opposed to the violence or did you just want to be represented? Were you opposed to the sexualization or did you just want a certain type of person to be represented within that sexualization and you weren't seeing it? You know, so you see the same thing with the rise of video games where the cover has a woman with a big gun. And it's like, well, were people opposed to the violence itself? Or was it who was representing that violence? It's an important question to consider only if you have an agenda. Because if this is all just happening to you internally, well, cool. That's a Zen koan. It's a modern Zen koan to say, That's what you should ask yourself when you're meditating Is it the violence Or is it Who represents the violence That I wonder about What is the sound of one gun Shooting by itself With nobody pulling the trigger That's my zen koan Not one hand clapping What is the sound of a gun firing itself It still sounds like a gun That's easy not much of a zen koan if you can easily answer it. I'll find one though. I'll find a good gun koan. That'd be my way of recruiting men. In I, I want to recruit macho men. Rest in peace Randy Savage, but I I want to recruit macho men into zen Buddhism. Even though I'm not a zen Buddhist, I want to rec- I want to recruit people into it. You don't see that very often. You don't see people recruiting people into something that they aren't somehow a part of or profiting from. I want to be that guy. I want to be the people who, I want to recruit people into weird belief systems that I don't even believe in, just because I think it would help them. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh... Cause that that'd be funny, you know, the idea of like, you know, it's it's not for me, but I think it would be good for you. So I'm going to recruit you. I mean, that's sort of what we do when we work for a company. That's sort of we what we do when we work in sales or customer service or marketing for a business where we don't necessarily believe wholly in the product, but our job is to recruit people still and try to sell it, like a vacuum salesman, where. I guess vacuums are, you know, everybody has use for a vacuum. I'm trying to think of something else. I guess a Roomba something. I don't know. It's like a Roomba salesman where it's like, I don't actually want a Roomba. I don't want any robots in my home. In fact, I'm a little bit worried about the rise of AI and robots, but yet I've got to earn a living. So I'm going to sell Roombas to people. It's kind of like being like, I'm not a Zen Buddhist, but I'm going to recruit macho masculine men into Zen Buddhism so that I can recite koans to them. Like, what is the sound of a gun that is firing all by itself? And those exist, of course. I mean, they're automated guns, uh, of course. But yeah, it's it's sexualization and violence. Do you have a problem with the sexualization and the violence? Or do you have a problem with how it's represented or who is representing it? That's a good question to ask yourself. Another topic that's been on my mind, uh, really a free-for-all. Not even trying to smoothly transition, but just random thoughts on my brain today. You know, I think a lot of, especially right now, I think a lot about the difference between pain and suffering, where pain is a sensation and you can't necessarily prevent pain if something painful happens to you. If a needle jabs you, you're going to feel it. But suffering is the response to something that happens to you. Pain is the thing that happens to you, suffering is a response to that pain. And easier said than done, where there are some situations where you're going to suffer. But I think it's worth considering how much control you have over your own suffering. And an example of that is, you can see where suffering is learned very early on, where a lot of people point out, you know, when a baby falls... And they get back up and they're fine. But when their parent reacts, when their parent gives them this attention and is like, are you okay? When a parent treats that baby like something really traumatic happened, the baby then starts crying and acting. The baby starts suffering. And it's legitimate. I think in that moment, the baby feels it. The baby fell down, got back up, and was like, oh, that hurt. But they were just going to continue on because they're were, they were a rugged little baby and they're going to continue on. But it's when they realized that that thing could potentially be a cause of suffering that they then erupt into tears. And they're not acting because a baby will just cry and that's real. But it's still, they they learned in that moment that, oh, I'm supposed to suffer when I fall. I'm supposed to fall. I, 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 the things that, that happened with my lips on this show. Um, but, uh... Uh you know, <laughs> distracting, they're distracting, I distract myself with these sounds, um, but, uh, you know, when a baby falls, it's like, that's painful, but it's not necessarily a cause of suffering, but they learn from the parent that, oh, this is an opportunity to suffer. And you can look at that, too, and say, well, why does a baby want to suffer? Well, because they get a lot more attention from their parent. And you look at when people express their suffering, they generally want attention. You know, pain is a sensation, pain is inward, suffering is often outward. And of course we, of course there's internal suffering, there's a lot of it, and we don't always express that. But there is when somebody is when when somebody is very vocally suffering, they're looking for attention in the same way that a baby cries. And I think of that myself where, you know, sometimes I will like stub my toe or I'll I'll hit my elbow on something and it doesn't actually hurt. And I say, ow, I say, ow, and it didn't actually hurt. It was something that could potentially cause pain and maybe there was a split second of discomfort, but yet my automatic response is to vocalize it and act like it hurt me when it really didn't. And that's not to say you shouldn't say ow or you shouldn't express pain when it happens because for a good reason, you know, when you when you vocalize, when something painful happens, there's a reason why, you know, sometimes screaming or talking or saying something actually helps with that pain. You're almost displacing the sensation in a way. But you can see where we learn how to suffer. We learn that, oh, this is an opportunity to suffer. The pain is there no matter what. And that happens emotionally. And sometimes it's just a, it's a little bit unavoidable, and sometimes you have to wallow in your own suffering. Sometimes I think that's good. Sometimes that helps you really address what happened, and it allows you to know that you're not running away from what happened, too. But uh, you, don't be, a, if you can be, if you can be, don't be a suffering baby just because you fell down. Just because someone, and I mean, I've seen, I I felt this a lot, you know, and I'm very self-conscious of talking about my mom's situation with her passing, even though it's been just an endlessly profound experience. And certainly there's been a lot of pain to it, but not that much suffering at this point. But when I talk to people, they talk to me as if I'm suffering. And, it's strange, because I appreciate what they're trying to do, but when you tell them you're not suffering, and not necessarily in that word, but when you say, well, you know, it's been easier than I thought in some ways, and, you know, that kind of thing, it's like, I'm not trying to downplay what happened, because it's a significant loss. And even though I don't feel like, you know, it's a total loss, because I do feel like that something happens where that person is within me, both within my DNA, within my spirit, and all around me. You know, even though I still have that sense, like it doesn't feel like she's completely gone. You know, she's gone. And I would love to talk to her. I would love to go on adventures. I would love to go to the grocery store with her and browse around slowly. I would love to do the things that I was really impatient about. I would love to do the things that I used to get really bratty about. You know, I would love to do all of that because I can't do it anymore. The option isn't there, and that's painful, but it doesn't have to make me suffer. But because death is such a cause of suffering for so many people, they think that I'm suffering when I don't feel like I'm suffering. So it's a similar situation to where I could I could really milk people—I could really milk that attention if I wanted. Because people are already, people are basically the parent, like, I'm basically a baby, and I fell down, and I got up, and I'm like, ow, you know, I fell down. But people are like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And in response to that, I could start crying in order to milk them of their sympathy, but that's not how I feel. And, And it's just weird, though, because a lot of our approach to death revolves around the suffering it produces. And there's no denying the pain, but it's just, it's just an interesting thing that, that's come out of that, where, you know, when you lose someone who you were—when you lose the person who is closest to you, even, people are naturally going to think that you're suffering, and they're not going to believe you when you try to tell them that you're not, even if you acknowledge the pain. So in that way, you know, it very much feels like a baby who fell down, and then the parent is freaking out. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to cry, but the parent almost wants me to cry, but that would be dishonest. A dishonest baby. That baby over there is being dishonest. But you can see where suffering is something you learn. It is something that we teach. It's something we promote, and often, often out of goodwill too. You know, we, we end up promoting suffering when we're trying to alleviate suffering, but we promote it because we project suffering onto things that aren't actually suffering. So that is—it's uh, it's been an interesting experience, and it's something I'm very aware of. And right now, I think, is a great example where the world is experiencing a certain amount of pain, and I'm not going to tell somebody who is suffering right now not to suffer, because if I'm ever in a situation where I've just got to suffer— I don't want somebody to tell me I'm, I'm a dishonest baby. Uh, but it is something to consider and think about right now, and, and I, there are certain practices, there are certain things you can do. You can train your mind to suffer less. I don't think you can ever escape suffering entirely. But I think you can train your mind away from it. Not to do it when you don't need to do it. For one. But I don't know if you can train your mind to see the synesthesia between Burger King, Pepsi, and Ford versus McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Chevrolet. I don't know if you can train your mind to do that. That might be just something you're born with. When Lady Gaga, when Lady Google said, born this way, she wasn't talking about gay people. She was talking about synesthesia. Born this way. Born with the ability to see the the parallel between Burger King, Pepsi, and Ford opposed to McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Chevrolet. She was talking about Rain Man Syndrome. She was talking about pea shyness. She was talking about anything and everything. And you know, the only time I actually heard that song was when I was in South Korea. We went to this market. And I, I walked by a radio and I heard the chorus and I go, holy shit, that's what? That's Lady Gaga. That's Lady Google. It was amazing. I, the first time I ever actually heard, like, like, I might have heard her in passing, but I wouldn't have recognized it. I'm sure I've heard all kinds of pop music in passing and not known what I was hearing. But because I knew Lady Gaga had a song... Lady Guga, because I knew she had a song called Born This Way, when I actually heard that chorus out loud coming from a radio in South Korea, I was like, holy shit, that's lady, lady. That's lady, lady, Google. But she was actually talking about, even though I don't know any of the other lyrics to that song, what she was actually talking about was synesthesia, rain man syndrome, and pee shyness. Because that's my excuse with pea shyness, is born this way. Not my fault. It's not my fault that, you know, I feel uncomfortable going into a stadium restroom where there's a giant metal trough and you have to set your own boundaries. Like, urinals are demeaning enough. Urinals where you have to go in and, yeah, there's some separation. You each have your own urinal, but you're right next to somebody else with your dick out. You're right next to somebody else with your dick out. And people don't have boundaries. People will talk to you. Strangers, especially at bars, back when I drank, some drunk guy will come in, and he'll, like, lean up against the urinal with his forearm against the wall, and he'll start talking about something. He'll talk about a woman he's trying to hit on at the bar or something. And people, they have no boundaries. You know, they'll, There's a wall of urinals, and they'll choose the urinal right next to you. That's why I always choose the stall, if I have a choice. So, and people do it when they're parking cars. I've never understood that either. Like, you have a whole parking lot. And I always park in the back. I, As I mentioned, I always park in the back of the parking lot. You know, you're less likely, l- less likely to have somebody else park there. And you get your steps in. You know, I, I don't believe in weighing yourself. I don't believe in measuring your waistline. But obviously I believe in wearing a little watch that counts your steps because that's how you lose weight. You weigh you your little watch, and you count your steps. You know, obviously, I believe in that. No, obviously, I, that's worst of all, counting your steps. Just go for a walk. Just go for a damn walk. Um. God, I'm getting mad. I'm starting to suffer. Suffering. Suffering through my anger here. But, uh, it's that same kind of thing, though, where like you know, park. In, I park in the back of a parking lot, and I, I am repeating myself here. I know I've talked about this a lot, uh, but it's just better all around. You know, if you if you are an able-bodied person, if you're fat, skinny, anything in between, park in the back of the lot and walk in. And if you have too many grocery bags, well, hey, you're more than welcome to take the car out. Take it to your car, unload it, and bring the cart back. They even set up a bunch of little cart places, like they have those little stations where you can leave the cart. Grocery store parking lots are designed for people to park in the back, but point being, just like a urinal, just like a wall of urinals, you're the only person in there, I always choose the farthest urinal, you know, like either the farthest one on the left, usually on the left. Uh, or the farthest one on the right in some cases, depending on what seems like more private. But I always choose one extreme or the other if I have a choice. But sometimes you'll have a whole wall of urinals and someone will come up and use the one right next to you. And people do that with their cars too. They have a whole parking lot available and they park right next to you. What is that? What's going on in someone's brain? They're obviously not thinking about it, but something about them is like, I want to be close. It's a needy person. It's a weird and needy person. It's like eye contact. Again, repeating myself, but we're just all over here. And and it's the same thing with eye contact, where I'm, I'm trying to be better about eye contact. And we have this idea that eye contact is... That not making eye contact makes you dishonest. And of course, animals make eye contact. Like, eye contact is a very important part. Like, I make a lot of eye contact with Batty. When I've had cats, eye contact is very important. With human beings, I'm not as into eye contact. I get distracted. My thoughts get distracted. I start thinking too much about how we are making eye contact. And I I don't feel like my thoughts come as freely. Whereas when I'm kind of looking around, I feel like I'm able to riff better. I feel like I'm more in tune with my thoughts. But people think that you're lying. And I've been called out before where people are like, you you never make eye contact. And it's like, what do you like in a relationship? That's my new joke. I've been saying that lately when this comes up. I've been like, you know, when someone says, you never make eye contact, just say, you are needy. If you are needy about eye contact, what do you like when you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? You know, what, what, what do you like? What do you like when your boyfriend goes in the other room? What do you like when your boyfriend's reading a book or, or watching something without you? You can't even deal with like a minimal... Because it, it's not that I don't make any eye contact. It's sort of selective eye contact. I'll, I use eye contact to emphasize something in between thoughts. I'll, be, I'll think of something, and then I make eye contact as I say something, and then I go back to no eye contact. But if you have a problem with people just looking down on occasion or looking over your shoulder or looking somewhere, what do you like when you're married? You know, how needy are you? What do you like when someone doesn't text you back within 10 minutes? That's something to consider. What do you like when someone parks in the back of a grocery store parking lot? Are you the type of person who also parks right next to somebody when you have a whole parking lot available? Are you also the kind of person who chooses the urinal right next to somebody? Eye contact. You know, I do feel like these things are all related. Maybe this is synesthesia. Eye contact is to urinals, is to relationships, and parking lots, as Burger King is to Pepsi is to Ford, as McDonald's is to Coca-Cola is to Chevrolet. Everything's connected like that. You know, this is, the synesthesia never ends. And if the synesthesia never ends, we are endlessly entertained, Unless you're seeing a lot of bad nines. So go surround yourself with the good nines. Go out. Get, mingle with those good nines. And, uh, you know, and enjoy your synesthesia. Because synesthesia, it's almost like a, a form of intuition, too. You know, I talk a lot about clearing the path for your intuition... When you see parallels between things, don't push it away. Be like, hmm, maybe there is something to this, and we just don't have a way of explaining it. And we don't need to. We don't need to measure it. Just like you don't need to measure your waistline, just like you don't need to count your steps, just like you don't need to weigh your chicken before you eat it. You know know if it's a reasonable amount of chicken, based on your activity level, based on how how many weights you've lifted that day, eyeball it. Use your intuition. You don't need to to measure everything. You know, just go with your intuition. You know, people were doing it since the beginning of time. People were in good shape before they had step counters on their watch. (laughs) ¶¶